Happy New Year and welcome to Ask Dr. Jessica, the podcast where my goal is to have quality conversations to help anyone out there who cares about children. I am your host and pediatrician, Dr. Jessica Hockman. On today's episode, I have a very special guest, Dr. Michael Gorin. And Dr. Gorin has spent his career dedicated to helping children live healthier lives. He is one of the world's most widely recognized experts in childhood obesity. He is a professor of pediatrics at the University of Southern California, Keck School of Medicine, and he is the co-director of the USC Diabetes and Obesity Research Institute. He is very passionate about the fact that children are having more sugar than ever in their diets. So to start the new year, I thought it would be helpful and hopefully motivating to talk about his book, Sugar Proof, The Hidden Dangers of Sugar That Are Putting Your Child's Health at Risk and What You Can Do. I feel lucky to welcome Dr. Gorin as a guest. Dr. Gorin, thank you so much for being here. My pleasure, Jessica. Nice to, nice to meet you and looking forward to talking with you. I think the topic of research that you do is probably one of the top areas of importance uh, when it comes to children and their health. I'm so excited to talk to you about your book. Um, so first tell me, how did you come to this area of interest? What, what started it all for you? Yeah, so I, you know, I've been, I've been doing the research in this area for over 30 years. Uh, in the area of childhood nutrition, we've, you know, we've seen seen a lot happening in those 30 years. Obesity wasn't even talked about. Diabetes in children was type 1 diabetes or type 2 diabetes in childhood was not really a thing. Uh, so we've seen a lot of changes. We've done a lot of the research. And then, you know, I'm realizing that what we're finding, as you said, it's so important. But people aren't reading the research. So I just, I, I wanted to do what I could to accelerate the translation of, of not just our research, but other research in the field, because it's so important for, for, for families today to have that up-to-date information. And so the story came together, the findings came together and it was a, it was a it was a journey to write the book, but I really wanted to get the information out to the public in an easily digestible, practical way. Early in your book, you talk about how you wanted to stick to data and bring about data into the conversation. Can you share with us what is some of the data that you read? Maybe the most salient data that you found interesting, or that parents may really understand why this education is so important? Well, I, th I think a big, a big, there were several turning points. One of the big ones was, I mean, it was over 10 years ago. We had a very simple question. We wanted to know what was actually, what was actually in a can of soda? Like, what is it? What it, what it, we know it's sugar. We know it's high fructose corn syrup, but we don't, we don't really know what the chemical composition is. And so we did a very simple study and we, we just, we bought sodas from the grocery store. We bought soda, sodas from the cinema, from gas stations, from the soda fountains, and we sent them off to be analyzed. And I think the results were pretty surprising. I mean, we knew that they were high in sugar, but what we found was that they were higher in a particular sugar called fructose, um, the, higher than what the industry was um, saying was in them. 
And whilst at the same time there was research going on indicating the negative impact of fructose on growing bodies. And so I think the combination of those types of things were quite impactful. And I think also just in general, you know, everybody's an expert in nutrition these days, right? I mean, in, in social media, you, you can have a million followers and project your ideas on nutrition, uh, but and it's and, and, but I wanted to make it data driven. Um, so I'm very focused on actual studies and data and findings. Uh, and, and it can be confusing. That's 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 a dilemma. It's not always simple or straightforward. Absolutely. But to answer your question, I think it was a combination of the realization that kids were consuming not just more sugar, but different types of sugar, and that it was impacting children in different ways than adults because of its the way it was disrupting growth and development. And I think this is such an interesting point that you point out that sugar actually affects children more than adults. I think a lot of parents, they look at their children as, uh, you know, they don't want to deprive them of sugar. They look at them and they see that they're thin. Uh, when they're children, it's okay for them to have sugar. Can you explain why that isn't the case? It's, it, it's a dilemma for you know, for us in getting the message out broadly because of this belief, I think there's a general perception that the only problem to look out for is, let's say, excess body weight gain. Um, but as we talk about in the book, there's many, many other different impacts of sugar on growing bodies. And I think what many of those effects are are under the skin, are hidden, are not are not obvious. Um, for example, you know, and, and, and the the end result, let's say type two diabetes or fatty liver disease or even cardiovascular disease, kids don't have those. Well, some of them do, unfortunately, but it's not highly prevalent. But they have their silent progression. So, it, I think it's kind of, on the one hand, the silent progression aspect. That, I mean, even my daughter, my teenage daughter, daughter is always telling me, "Oh, this sugar is not going to kill me." So, you know, I'm up against that in my own family, um, trying to kind of get the message. Yeah, it's not going to kill you today, <laughs> but um, you know, over time there will be a you know a chronic effect. You may get diabetes ten years earlier than other people, for example. So that's a problem, is the kind of time horizon issue. And then I think the on the other side is the cultural thing that sugar is fun, sweet treats are fun. I mean, I think it's part of the fabric of, 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 of eating and celebration. And I don't want to spoil that for me or for anybody because... I think that is an important part of our culture, but I think it has kind of become a little out of hand in that sugar is everywhere, there's more sugar in everything, and so we're not advocating to eliminate sugar. And again, 
the perception a lot of people have when they see me coming is like, oh God, hide the cookies. Michael Gorin's coming. But that's not what we want. We don't want to like shame people or put sugar up on a pedestal and say you can't have it. I think it's more about moderation and learning to enjoy and that you can enjoy cookies with less sugar. Uh, they don't always have to be like super sweet to enjoy them. So those two different aspects, the silent, slow progression and the kind of perception that, oh, it's, it's, it's all or nothing, but it's not all or nothing. I like that perception that you have because I think that a lot of people look at sugar as an addiction and you treat a lot of addictions by abstinence. You know, so I really think that your approach is more realistic because as you mentioned, sugar is everywhere. And I just don't think it's, it's realistic or helpful, quite frankly, to say never have any sugar. I don't think so. It's because if you, if you say no sugar, you say, okay, I'm going to go keto. But if you look in the supermarket at the keto products, I mean, keto products are just as uh, ultra-processed as other processed food. Um, they're, they're, they're like marketed as healthy because they're keto, but you know they're full of um, alternative synthetic or natural sweeteners. We can talk about that later. But they're still highly processed products that don't have sugar. So why do we have to make it complicated? Why can't we just use less sugar? It's a good point. It's a very good point. <laughs> it's not, you know, I think that's that's another dilemma, you know, is we forget about the simple solutions. Absolutely. It's very true. I mean, as you brought up, I think it's such an important point about all the hidden sugars that are around. And I like all the tips that you offer to help parents recognize hidden sugars because that can make such a big difference. Yeah, you, you, if, you, if you know where to look and you can recognize those hidden sugars, you know, 70% of processed foods in the supermarket contain some type of added sugar, oftentimes multiple forms of sugar, so it gets buried on the ingredient list. But if, if, if you can just kind of switch some of your products that you're buying in the grocery store, for example, Things like pasta sauce or yogurts, peanut butters, popular items for kids. Most of those types of products have sugars in them, but you can just buy a peanut butter or a pasta sauce or a yogurt with no added sugar, and there you can really eliminate a lot of those hidden sugars pretty quickly just by switching brands. Absolutely. I was thinking of you, well, actually, ever since I've been reading your book, I've been taking noticing sugar more to heart. And so yesterday I went and got sushi with my daughter and I thought, uh-oh, this eel sauce, as you mentioned in your book, there's so much hidden sugar in the teriyaki sauce and eel sauce. So I just think you're right, educating and bringing awareness is a good good place to start. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then, you know, I think we did then have to deal with bringing people down from the kind of the fact that we're are, 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 we're trained into liking things that are very sweet, but you can actually alter that um, by using less eel sauce or eventually no eel sauce. So uh, that's a process you have to go through. That is a process where you do have to go 
without added sugars, but not for always, just for, let's say, a week by doing the no added sugar challenge, you can detrain the brain to have this constant preference or liking for sweetness. So you can alter that preference down so that you can enjoy sushi with less eel sauce or no eel sauce. We have the seven-day challenge, and you do have to have everybody on board, otherwise it's not going to work. Right. Um, so, we, so we can, you know, we can kind of dive into trying to understand what the barriers were, or you can go stealth because you're probably, or you or your husband are probably buying most of the groceries. This is um, true. So you can decide not to bring soda into the house or not to bring ice cream into the house. I'm not saying you can never have ice cream again. You're just going to have it when you go out. So, Or you can buy a different type of pasta sauce or a different type of peanut butter. So that's kind of the stealth approach, which is our 28-day plan where you as the primary food buyer identify what the big culprits are. So what would you say, what are some of the top issue in your kids that you would like them to change? Honestly, I think we're pretty good in our house about not having, you know, having offering plenty of fruits and vegetables and having a good uh, balanced diet. The biggest challenge that we face is what happens outside of this week. For example, they're having multiple holiday parties. Um, they, mm. they do after school programs that frequently have sugary snacks, all the birthday parties. That's the biggest challenge. Absolutely. Yeah, my daughter came home from school yesterday, offered her various things for dinner, wasn't hungry because she had, you know, various events at school for the holidays. But, you know, now is just not the time to do it anyway. So <laughs> right. I think the time to do it is because of the holidays. The best time to do it is in the new year. So let's, you know, enjoy the holidays. We're not going to, you know, ruin anybody's fun but make a commitment in the new year to try and uh, consume less sugar. I love your moderate approach. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, it just, it's not going to work if you showed up with your three kids and say, okay, no more, not having any more sugar or you know, fun foods, or you're going to be the kid who goes to the birthday party with your own piece of cake, um, you know, it's just, it's very, it's not sustainable, and kids are likely to rebel at that, against that at some point. To a certain extent, you just got to hope that you keep selling that message, but not overly, and at some point, they will emerge from the other side and have some level of appreciation or understanding of what their mom was telling them all those years is, you know, hopefully yes. there will be some seed planted in their brain that will emerge later in terms of, uh, you know, when they're in college or when they're young adults. So. Yes. No, as you, as you mentioned in your book, I think the best thing would be is if they, you know, you educate them and then they on their own are motivated to, to eat healthier. Just to educate parents and myself, 
I think reading labels is so important. And you gave so many good tips about reading labels in your book. Can you explain to parents how much sugar should we tolerate when we look at labels? How many grams of sugar is okay for our children? Yeah, great question. We have a, we have a table in the book, but we can break it down to, to pretty simple um, numbers. So, and and here, by the way, we're talking about added sugars, uh, which we do now have differentiated on the food level. So, added sugars are sugars that are added to food. So, like the sugar in milk doesn't count because that's a natural sugar in milk. Um, we're talking about sugar that's added to peanut butter, like I mentioned, or yogurt. So there will be a line on the nutrition label that says added sugars. That's pretty new, but we do have that now in the last couple of years. And so the, the guidelines are for added sugars. Uh, for the ages zero to two years of age, this is a simple recommendation. The, the recommendation is zero added sugars up to two years of age. Uh, but between 2 and 18, it increases from 0 to about 20 grams of added sugar uh, per day uh, for a teenager. So depending on their age, it might be 5 or 10 or 15 or 20. Um, but it's not like we're, I'm not like saying that, I don't think we're saying that you need to go around counting every single gram of sugar and, and logging it. I think it's what I do think is helpful is to know what that recommendation is. Let's say you're 12 year old. It's going to be, let's say, 15 grams of added sugar. Then you, then you as a parent, you have that number in your mind so that when you're at the grocery store and you're, you're trying to decide which yogurt to buy for your kid's lunchbox, you have that number in mind and then you pick one up and it's got 15 grams of added sugar. You say, oh, that's the daily allotment, so I don't think that one's going to work. And then you might be more likely to pick something with less added sugar. So it's a very hard target to meet. It's a very strict target to meet. But because you can easily overcome it with one cookie or a glass of juice or a glass of soda. But if you have that number in mind whilst making those key decisions, then I think you may be more likely to choose something that's lower in added sugars than higher in added sugars. And again, it doesn't have to be perfect. I'm not promoting perfectionism that you have to get to 12 grams of added sugar, not a gram more, not a gram less. It's just having a general understanding of what those recommendations are relative to what's in the foods that you buy and put in their lunch boxes or out as a snack. So, so just to summarize, in from the research you've done, it's the concern more is the added sugars, not sugar that's found in nature. So you're saying that dairy is okay, whole fruits are okay, but it's the added sugar that we're concerned about. Yeah, except it does get a little complicated and nuanced because um, fruits, you're exactly right. We, I don't have any problem with uh, fruit um, or the sugars in dairy. Only thing is I wouldn't consume a lot of fruit all at once, but that's very uncommon. I'm talking like four or five servings of, of fruit all at once. Four or five throughout the day is okay. The 
difficulty and the complication is fruit juice. Once you take that juice out of the fruit, by government regulations, technically it's not added sugar. Like the sugars in a, in a bottle of fruit juice are not added sugar, but they're also not natural either because you've taken the juice out of three apples and squeezed it into one bottle, right? So um, you've eliminated the fiber and it's a lot more. So it's not added sugar, but the USDA doesn't count it as added sugar, but I think we should be counting that as added sugar because it's not in its natural form. Yes. Which is to say that eating an, so eating an apple is okay but drinking the juice from three apples all at once without the fiber, that's a big problem because nobody's eating three apples all at once and the fiber is there to slow down the release of the sugars into the bloodstream. Just to help parents with label reading, mm -hmm. can you mention some of the added sugars that you want parents to stay away from? I know there are so many of them, but can you mention some of the big ones? Well, pretty much all of them. Um, <laughs> uh, although we can talk about sugars to use in baking might be a little different, but pretty much all of the and there all of the added sugars that you'll see on press, processed foods is it is complicated because there's over 250 different names that may appear on an ingredient list. So, food companies have gotten pretty smart about this because if they use five, six, seven, eight different types of sugar in a, let's say, in a, in a granola bar, like they can bury those ingredients further down on the ingredient list so you as the consumer might not see it as easily because it's at the bottom of the list, not in the top of the list. So thing, I mean, some of my favorites <laughs> are things like uh, organic brown rice syrup. Let's take that as a good example. You'll see that a lot in things like granola bars, like I mentioned, or cereals. Um, and it's, it's a great name because it's organic, it's brown, and it's rice, so it sounds pretty healthy, right? It does. But it's really, it's the same as corn syrup. It's exactly the same thing. So we all like have, have a perception of corn syrup. Organic brown rice syrup is exactly the same thing, except it was derived from rice that was brown and organic, as opposed to from corn. So that's one. Then the other one is all you were seeing a lot of is um, concentrated fruit sugars or evaporated fruit sugars. Again, they are high in fructose and taking, taken out of their natural form as in the fruit. So, you know, if you take a bunch of apples and juice them and then evaporate down the juice, you'll have, you know, fruit sugar, which fruit sugar sounds pretty good, doesn't it? It sounds quite healthy, but it's really just sugar made from fruit juice in the same way that cane sugar is sugar made from sugar cane. So 
it's actually worse because the fruit sugar is higher in fructose than regular sugar. Regular sugar is 50% fructose, whereas fruit sugar is 70 to 75% fructose. And then the high fructose corn syrup, I think that's pretty well known, but that's, that's so bad. Uh, it's so it's it's found in so much excess in so many foods. Yeah, and I think I don't know. I think I, I think a lot of parents are turned on to that now, um, and know to look for it. But I think that and it, it's become easily associated with something that's not healthy. But what if I told you that regular apple juice? had more fructose and high fructose corn syrup. I'd be which surprised. Is true. Yeah. Wow. So the most common form of high fructose corn syrup that's used in soda, for example, is about 60% fructose. But apple juice can be 70 to 75% fructose. So it's deceivingly apple, sugary. Yeah, it's not just sugary, but it's high in fructose. It's High fructose apple juice is what it should be called. That's not to say you can't enjoy apple juice because the best solution there is just to cut it with water because most, most of the commercial products are way too sweet anyway. So if you are drinking, if your kids are drinking apple juice, just dilute it a little bit um, to reduce the sugar and get your kids kind of off the sweetness preference a little bit. Two of my kids are okay with that. My third and youngest, she can tell when I dilute it and she doesn't like it. So we compromise by, yeah. by giving her less. So that, how old are your youngest? Five? She's seven. Seven. So that is... She's on to okay. me. Well, this is biological. So when we talk about this in the book too, um, and the, the food industry knows about this biology and is hijacking your seven-year-old's taste buds because... Um, Young kids have a higher preference for sweetness. They um, need to have something sweeter to like it. Okay, this is but this is an innate preference that starts during infancy and lasts through childhood. And we don't know why, but you can imagine that it's had some type of protective mechanism, some type of protective action from an evolutionary perspective before we had this overabundance of food you know if you if we were hunting and gathering then this preference for sweetness would protect your seven-year-old from food that might have spoiled or it would help them seek out something in the forest that was uh, sweet and healthy so that's that's why it's there food companies know about it they make things sweeter so that your seven-year-olds will like it more and get hooked on it and want it more, even as a 12-year-old or as a 15-year-old. This heightened preference starts to wane off later in life, so that may be why, um, for me as an adult and you as an adult, if I tasted an apple juice, I would be like, oh my God, what is this stuff? I, I just don't like the taste of it because it's way too sweet and it can't I can't taste the apple I can just taste sweetness and another topic that I think parents would love to know about 
the artificial sweeteners, and I know you talked a lot about this in your book, the various artificial sweeteners. What is your stance on artificial sweeteners? Is it okay for, is it, is it a good choice for parents to use artificial sweeteners? No. <laughs> in a word. Um, I don't think it's a good idea for many reasons. Um, and I'll try to go through those reasons. First of all, there's extremely limited data on the long, short or long-term health effects of these sweeteners in kids, whether they're synthetic like sucralose, which is chlorinated sugar, or natural like stevia or monk fruit. Regardless of where it came from, we don't really know how they're affecting growing bodies. We do know from studies in children and adults that they do cause disruption in gut health, for example. Um, they continue to, they don't, they don't resolve craving for sweetness. And they may uh, magnify craving for sweetness because of the way they trick the body. So something with an alternative sweetener. And again, I don't care whether it's sucralose or stevia or monk fruit, it doesn't matter. Um, many people assume that if it's natural like monk fruit, it must be okay. But the receptors in your tongue and in your brain, they don't know the difference. They get powerfully activated by these compounds. Um, and when they get activated, they send a signal to the body to take sugar out of the blood because they think a lot of it's coming in. But it's not there to begin with, so your blood sugar goes really low and you get hypoglycemic, which means you get cranky and hungry and end up eating more. So studies in children and adults actually show that those who are habitually consuming sweeteners end up consuming more sugar, more calories throughout the day because of that. I think this is great information. I know so many families that think agave is, you know, that when you add agave and monk fruit and all of these quote unquote natural sweeteners that it's a good choice. I think it's important to think about what that is. And I think we forget about it because these, these things just get normalized very quickly. Oh, monk fruit's okay. But it's not like there's bits of monk fruit in whatever the product is, the cookies or the soda. There's monk fruit tastes disgusting, um, has a very bad taste. Uh, there's an active ingredient in monk fruit called mongracide A that gets purified out um, of monk fruit in the same way that sucrose gets purified out of uh, cane sugar. So they purify this product called mongracide A or from stevia. Again, it's not like there's bits of stevia leaf. Um, it's actually a compound called riboidosoid A that gets purified. And uh, we're still ingesting these compounds with the assumption that it's not affecting the body in any way. And that's a big assumption. They, they Some of these compounds, like monk fruit, is not yet approved in the EU, for example. Um, stevia, I mean, there are safety levels of safety for these compounds that are really based on lab studies in rats um, based on whether or not they caused cancer in a lab rat. 
So um, that's the standard of which we're working with. It's not like anybody's tested these compounds to see what the 10, 20, 30 year effect is on your child. Nobody knows what that is. So why, why would you take the chance when you can just use regular sugar but use less of it? If we're baking, for example, I mean, I, you know, you, you like to bake? Uh, my daughter likes to bake, my oldest daughter. She watches the Great. British baking show all the time, so oh, we do bake. Oh, cool. Yeah, that's fun. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's, it, it, it's fun. It's a great activity for kids. Um, but most recipes just call for too much sugar. So you can do something, again, something simple. If you're baking or making something, just, just add 70, you know, just cut the sugar by 25 or 30%. And it's not really going to make a big impact. It might even taste better. Um, but, yeah, I think that in general we've, you know, the food system's become overwhelmed with all these products that's got very complicated. Any last advice that you want parents to, to hear from you? No pressure. <laughs> <laughs> well, again, I'll go back anyway. to say, you know, it's just being aware of this issue and doing small things every day or is a good place to start. It doesn't have to be perfect. It doesn't have to be all or nothing. You know, in, in my personal life, I'm not a drinker. I don't really do, I don't really have many vices, but my biggest vice, uh, anybody who knows me would agree with this is that I have a weak spot for sugar. So I've really appreciated all this advice for, of course, my children, but also for me, it's definitely inspiring me to take better, you know, take, take, take more notice of how much sugar I'm consuming. Yeah, I would, I would say I'm probably in the same um, situation as you, Jessica. Um, I don't drink, I don't even drink coffee, uh, but I do, you know, I like, I like sweet treats. If, if, if there was a, you know, if there were cookies downstairs or some cake, that would sound, that's very appealing to me. Um, that doesn't mean to say I'm never going to eat it. Uh, you know, I, I'm not going to advocate for complete abstinence again. We talked about that just because I just don't think that's healthy. I, I think um, we can en enjoy those parts of our of our diet. Doesn't mean to say you know it's just all about portion size and moderation, as you mentioned. No, thank you. It's nice to hear, even from the author of Sugar Proof, that it's okay to have a little bit. Well, yeah. Anything I can do to shake off this perception, like, like I said earlier, like people like see me coming and they think I'm the sugar police because I wrote the book. But um, again, it's 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 part of our culture. It's part of our celebration. It's just gotten out of hand a little bit. Absolutely. And no, it has multiple effects on, on kids' bodies. I think the work you're doing, again, is so important because, as you mentioned, it is such a part of our culture, and it's really harmful for children and their, and their health in a big way. So. Yeah. Well, thank you for all you're doing to kind of bring, bring that information. 
the public. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Ask Dr. Jessica. I hope you learned a lot from Dr. Michael Gorin. I know I definitely did. Also, I would be so appreciative if you could do two things for me. First, please, if you could be so kind as to leave a review wherever it is you listen to podcasts. And second, please pass this episode along to anyone who you think may like it. See you next Monday.